0: chapter fourteen of home life in colonial days by alice morse earle this librivox recording is in the public domain travel transportation and taverns wherever the earliest colonists settled in america they had to adopt the modes of travel And the ways of getting from place to place of their predecessors and new neighbors the indians these were first and generally to walk on their own stout legs second to go wherever they could by water in boats in maryland and virginia where for a long time nearly all settlers tried to build their homes on the banks of the rivers and bays, the travel was almost entirely by boats, as it was between settlements on all the great rivers—the Hudson, Connecticut, and Merrimack— between the large settlements in massachusetts boston salem and plymouth travel was preferably when the weather permitted in boats the colonists went in canoes or pinnaces shaped and made exactly like the birch bark canoes of the Canadian Indians today, and in dugouts, which were formed from hollowed pine logs, usually about 20 feet long and two or three feet wide. Both of these were made for them by the Indians. It was said that one Indian working alone, felling the pine tree by the primitive way of burning, and scraping off the charred parts with a stone tool called a kelt, for the Indians had no iron or steel axes, then cutting off the top in the same manner, then burning out part of the interior, then burning and scraping and shaping it without and within could make one of these dugouts in three weeks the indians at Odonaga still make the wooden mortars they use in the same tedious way when the white men came to america in great ships the indians marveled much at the size thinking they were hollowed out tree trunks as were the dugouts and wondered where such vast trees grew the swedish scientific traveler calm who was in america in 1748 was delighted with the indian canoes and dugouts he found the swede's settlers using them constantly to go long distances to market he said they usually carry six persons who however by no means must be unruly but sit at the bottom of the canoe in the quietest manner possible lest the boat upset They are narrow, round below, have no keel, and may be easily overset. So when the wind is brisk, the people make for the land. Larger dugouts were made for war canoes, which would carry thirty or forty savages." these boats usually kept close to the shore both in calm and windy weather though the natives were not afraid to go many miles out to sea in the dugouts the lightness of the birch bark canoe made it specially desirable where there were such frequent overland transfers it was and is A beautiful and perfect expression of natural and wild life, as Longfellow wrote. The forest life was in it, all its mystery and magic, all the lightness of the birch tree, all the toughness of the cedar, all the larches' supple sinews. AND IT FLOATED ON THE RIVER LIKE A YELLOW LEAF IN AUTUMN." THE FRENCH GOVERNOR AND MISSIONARIES ALL SAW AND ADMIRED THESE BIRCH-BARK CANOES. FATHER CHALVOIS WROTE A BEAUTIFUL AND VIVID DESCRIPTION OF THEM. ALL THE EARLY TRAVELERS NOTED THEIR TICKLISH balance. Wood writing in sixteen thirty four said quote, in these cockling flyboats, an Englishman can scarce sit without a fearful tottering unquote. and Madame Knights, a century later, said in her vivid English of a trip in one, quote, the canoe was very small and shallow, which greatly terrified me and caused me to be very circumspect, sitting with my hands fast on each side, my eyes steady, not daring so much as to lodge my tongue, a hair's breadth more on one side of my mouth than t'other, nor so much to think on Lot's wife, for a very thought would have overset our weary, unquote when boats and vessels were built by the colonists they were in forms or had names but little used today shallop catch pink and snow are rarely heard sloops were early built but schooner is a modern term bateau and periagua still are used, and the gundalo, picturesque with its lanteen sail, still is found on our northern New England shores. The Indians had narrow footpaths in many places through the woods. On them foot-travel was possible, though many estuaries and rivers intersected the coast for the narrow streams could be crossed on natural fordways or on rude bridges of fallen trees, which the English government ordered to be put in place. As late as 1631, Governor Endicott would not go from Salem to Boston to visit Governor Winthrop because he was not strong enough to wade across the fords. He might have done as Governor Winthrop did the next year when he went to Plymouth to visit Governor Bradford, and it took him two days to get there. He might have been carried across the fords pick by an Indian guide. The Indian paths were good, though only two or three feet wide, and in many places the savages kept the woods clear from underbrush by burning over large tracts. When King Philip's War took place, all the land around the Indian settlements in Narragansett and eastern Massachusetts was so free of brush that horsemen could ride everywhere freely through the woods some of the old paths are famous in our history the most so was the bay path which ran from cambridge through marlborough worcester oxford brookfield and on to springfield and the connecticut river Holland's beautiful story called by the name of the path gives its history its sentiment and much that happened on it in olden times when new paths were cut through the forest the settler blazed the trees that is they chopped a piece of the bark off tree after tree standing on the side of the way thus the blazes stood out clear and white in the dark shadows of the forests like welcome guide-posts showing the traveler his way in maryland roads turning off to a church were marked by slips or blazes cut near the ground in maryland and virginia What were known as, and indeed are still called, rolling roads were cut through the forest. They were narrow roads down which hogsheads of tobacco fitted with axles could be drawn or rolled from inland plantations to the river or bayside sometimes the hogsheads were simply rolled by human propulsion not dragged on these roads the broad rivers soon had canoe ferries the first regular massachusetts ferry from charleston to boston was in sixteen thirty nine it carried passengers for three pence apiece from chelsea to boston was fourpence. in sixteen thirty six the cambridge ferryman charged but half a penny as so many wished to attend the thursday lecture in the boston churches we learn from the massachusetts laws that often a rider had to let his horse cross by swimming over being guided from the ferry boat he then paid no ferriage for the horse. After wheeled vehicles were used, these ferries were not large enough to carry them properly. Often the carriage had to be taken apart or towed over, while the horse had his forefeet in one canoe ferry and his hind feet in another the two canoes being lashed together the rope ferry lingered till our own day and was ever a picturesque sight on the river as soon as roads were built there were of course bridges and cartways but these were only between the closely neighboring towns usually the bridges were merely horse bridges with a railing on but one side after the period of walking and canoe riding had had its day nearly all land travel for a century was on horseback just as it was in england at that date in sixteen seventy two there were only six stage coaches in the whole of great britain and a man wrote a pamphlet protesting that they encouraged too much travel. Boston then had one private coach. Women and children usually rode seated on a pillion behind a man. A pillion was a padded cushion with straps, which sometimes had on one side a sort of platform stirrup. ONE WAY OF PROGRESS WHICH WOULD HELP FOUR PERSONS RIDE PART OF THEIR JOURNEY WAS WHAT WAS CALLED THE RIDE-AND-TIE SYSTEM. TWO OF THE FOUR PERSONS WHO WERE TRAVELING STARTED ON THEIR ROAD ON FOOT. TWO MOUNTED ON THE SADDLE AND PILLION, rode ABOUT A MILE, DISMOUNTED, TIED THE HORSE, AND WALKED ON when the two who had started on foot reached the waiting horse they mounted rode on past the other couple for a mile or so dismounted tied and walked on and so on it was also a universal and courteous as it was a pleasant custom for friends to ride out on the road a few miles with any departing guest or friend, and then bid them godspeed a gatewards in seventeen oh four. A Boston schoolmistress named Madame Knights rode from Boston to New York on horseback. She was probably the first woman to make the journey, and it was a great and daring undertaking she had as a companion the post this was the mail carrier who also rode on horseback one of his duties was to assist and be kind to all persons who cared to journey in his company the first regular mail started from new york to boston on january first sixteen seventy three the postman carried two portmantles which were crammed with letters and parcels he did not change horses till he reached hartford he was ordered to look out and report the condition of all ferries fords and roads he had to be active stout indefatigable and honest when he delivered his mail it was laid on a table at an inn and any one who wished looked over all the letters then took and paid the postage which was very high on any address to himself it was usually about a month from the setting out of the post in winter till his return as late certainly as seventeen thirty the mail was carried from new york to albany in the winter by a foot-post he went up the hudson river and lonely enough it must have been probably he skated up once the ice was good this mail was only sent at irregular intervals in 1760 there were but eight mails a year from philadelphia to the potomac river and even then the post rider need not start till he had received enough letters to pay the expenses of the trip it was not till postal affairs were placed in the capable and responsible hands of benjamin franklin that there were any regular or trustworthy mails the journal and the report of hugh finlay a post office surveyor in seventeen seventy three of the mail service from quebec to st augustine florida tells of the vicissitudes of mail matter even at that later day in some places the deputy as the postmaster was called had no office so his family rooms were constantly invaded occasionally a tavern served as a post office letters were thrown down on a table and if the weather was bad or smallpox raged or the deputy were careless they were not forwarded for many days letters that arrived might lie on the table or bar-counter for days for any one to pull over until the owner chanced to arrive and claim them good service could scarcely be expected from any deputy for his salary was paid according to the number of letters coming to his office and as private mail carriage constantly went on though forbidden by British law, the deputy suffered. Quote, if an information were lodged but an informer would get tarred and feathered, no jury would find the fact. Unquote. The government writers were in truth the chief offenders. Any ship's captain or wagon-driver or post-rider could carry merchandise therefore small sham bundles of paper straw or chips would be tied to a large sealed packet of letter and both be exempt from postage paid to the crown the post rider between boston and newport loaded his carriage with bundles real and sham which delayed him long in delivery he bought and sold on commission along this road and in violation of law he carried many letters to his own prophet he took twenty-six hours to go eighty miles had the newport deputy dared to complain he would have incurred much odium and been declared a quote, friend of slavery and oppression quote, old hurd the writer from saybrook to new york had been in the service forty-six years and had made a good estate he coolly took postage of all way letters as his perquisite was a money carrier and transferer all advantage to his own pocket carried merchandise returned horses for travellers and when finley saw him he was waiting for a yoke of oxen he was paid for fetching along some miles a pennsylvania post rider, an aged man occupied himself as he slowly jogged along by knitting mittens and stockings not always were mail potmato properly locked hence many letters were lost in the pulling in and out of bundles defaced the letters of course so much horseback riding made it necessary to have horse-blocks in front of nearly all houses in course of time stones were set every mile on the principal roads to tell the distance from town to town benjamin franklin set millstones the entire way on the post road from boston to philadelphia He rode in a chaise over the road, and a machine which he had invented was attached to the chaise, and it was certainly the first cyclometer that went on that road, over which so many cyclometers have passed during the last five years. It measured the miles as he travelled. When he had ridden a mile, he stopped. From a heavy cart loaded with milestones, which kept alongside the chaise, a stone was dropped, which was afterwards set by a gang of men. A number of old colonial milestones are still standing. There is one in Worcester, on what was the New Connecticut path, one in Springfield on the Bay Path, and there are several of Benjamin Franklin's setting, one being at Stratford, Connecticut. The inland transportation of freight was carried on in the colonies just as it was in Europe, on the backs of pack-horses very interesting historical evidence in relation to the methods of transportation in the middle of the eighteenth century may be found in the ingenious advertisement and address with which benjamin franklin raised transportation facilities for braddock's army in seventeen fifty five this is one of his most characteristic literary production braddock's appeals to the philadelphia assembly for a rough wagon road and wagons for the army succeeded in raising only twenty-five wagons franklin visited him in his desolate plight and agreed to assist him and appealed to the public to send to him for the use of the army a hundred and fifty wagons and fifteen hundred pack-horses for the latter franklin offered to pay two shillings a day each as long as used if provided with a pack-saddle twenty horses were sent with their loads to the camp as gifts to the british officers as a good and definite list of the load of one of these pack-horses was expected to carry AS WELL AS A RECORD OF THE KIND OF PROVISIONS, GRATEFUL TO AN OFFICER OF THAT DAY, LET ME GIVE AN INVENTORY, Quote, SIX POUNDS LOAF SUGAR, SIX POUNDS MUSCOVADO SUGAR, ONE POUND GREEN TEA, ONE POUND BOHIA TEA, SIX POUNDS GROUND COFFEE, six pounds chocolate, one half chest best white biscuit, one half pound pepper, one quart white vinegar, two dozen bottles old Madeira wine, two gallons Jamaica spirits, one bottle flour of mustard, two well-cured hams, one half dozen cured tongues six pounds rice six pounds raisins one gloucester cheese one keg containing twenty pounds best butter the wagons and horses were all lost after braddock's defeat or were seized by the french and indians and franklin had many anxious months of responsibility for damages from the owners BUT I AM CONFIDENT THE OFFICERS GOT ALL THE PROVISIONS. FRANKLIN GATHERED THE WAGONS IN YORK AND LANCASTER. NO TWO ENGLISH SHIRES COULD HAVE DONE BETTER AT THAT TIME THAN DID THESE PENNSYLVANIA COUNTIES. IN PENNSYLVANIA, WESTERN VIRGINIA, AND OHIO PACK HORSES LONG WERE USED. AND A PRETTY PICTURE IS DRAWN BY DODDRIDGE AND MANY OTHER LOCAL HISTORIANS OF THE TRAINS OF THESE HORSES AND THEIR GAY COLLARS AND STUFFED BELLS, AS LADEN WITH FURS, ginseng, AND snake root. THEY FILED DOWN THE MOUNTAIN ROADS TO THE TOWNS, AND CAME HOME LADEN WITH SALT, NAILS, TEA, PEWTER PLATES, ETC at night the horses were hobbled and the clappers of their bells were loosened the ringing prevented the horses being lost the animals started on their journey with two hundred pounds burden of which part was provender for horses and man which was left at convenient relays to be taken up on the way home two men could manage fifteen pack-horses, which were tethered successively each to the pack-saddle of the one in front of him. One man led the foremost horse, and the driver followed the file to watch the packs and urge on the laggards. Their numbers were vast, five hundred were counted at one time in carlisle pennsylvania going westward it was a costly method of transportation mr Howland says that in seventeen eighty four the expense of carrying a ton's weight from philadelphia to erie by pack horses was two hundred forty nine dollars it is interesting to note that the routes taken by those men skilled only in humble woodcraft were the same ones followed in later years by the engineers of the turnpikes and railroads. As the roads were somewhat better in Pennsylvania than in some other provinces and more needed, so wagons soon were far greater in numbered indeed during the revolution nearly all the wagons and horses used by the army came from that state there was developed in pennsylvania by the soft soil of these many roads as well as by various topographical conditions a splendid example Of a true American vehicle one which was a long time the highest type of a commodious freight carrier in this or any other country the Conestoga wagon the finest wagon the world has ever known they were first used in any considerable number about 1760 they had broad wheel tires and one of the peculiarities was a decided curve in the bottom analogous to that of a galley or canoe which made it specially fitted for traversing mountain roads for this curved bottom prevented freight from slipping too far at either end when going up or down hill THIS BODY WAS UNIVERSALLY PAINTED A BRIGHT BLUE, AND FURNISHED WITH SIDEBOARDS OF AN EQUALLY VIVID RED. THE WAGON BODIES WERE ARCHED OVER WITH SIX OR EIGHT STATELY BOWS, OF WHICH THE MIDDLE ONES WERE THE LOWEST, AND THE OTHERS ROSE GRADUALLY, IN FRONT AND REAR, TILL THE END BOWS WERE NEARLY OF EQUAL HEIGHT over them all was stretched a strong white hempen cover well corded down at the sides and ends these wagons could be loaded up to the bows and could carry four to six tons in weight the rates between philadelphia and Pittsburgh were about two dollars a hundred pounds the horses four to seven in number were magnificent often matched throughout some were a dapple gray or all bay the harnesses of best materials and appearance were costly each horse had a large housing of deerskin or heavy bearskin trimmed with deep scarlet fringe while the headstall was tied with bunches of gay ribbons bell teams were common Each horse except the saddle-horse then had a full set of bells tied with high-coloured ribbons. The horses were highly fed, and when the driver seated on the saddle-horse drew rein on the prancing leader and flourished his fine bull-hide London whip, making the silk snap and tingle round the leader's ears every horse started off with the ponderous load with a grace and ease that was beautiful to see the wagons were first used in the conestoga valley and most extensively used there and the sleek powerful draught horses known as the conestoga breed were attached to them hence their name these teams were objects of pride to their owners objects of admiration and attention wherever they appeared and are objects of historical interest and satisfaction to-day often a prosperous teamster would own several conestoga wagons and driving the leading and handsomest team himself would start off his proud procession from twenty to a hundred would follow in close row large numbers were constantly passing at one time ten thousand ran from philadelphia to other towns Josiah Quincy told of the road at Lancaster being lined with them. The scene on the road between the Cumberland Valley and Greensburg, where there were five distinct and noble mountain ranges—Tuscarora, Ray's Hill, Allegheny, Laurel Hills, and Chestnut Ridge—when a long train of white-topped Conestoga wagons appeared and wound along the sides. Was picturesque and beautiful with a charm unparalleled today. Quote, Many a fleet of them in one long upward winding row. It ever was a noble sight, as from the distant mountain height or quiet valley far below, their snow white covers looked like sail. Unquote there were two classes of conestoga wagons and wagoners the regulars or men who made it their constant and only business and militia a local poet thus describes these outfits militia men drove narrow treads four horses and plain red dutch beds and always carried grub and feed there were farmers or common teamsters who made occasional trips usually in winter time and did some carriage for others and drove but four horses with their wagons the regulars had broad tires carried no feed for horses nor food for themselves but both classes of teamsters carried coarse mattresses and blankets which they spread side by side and row after row on the bar-room floor of the tavern at which they put up their horses when unharnessed fed from long troughs hitched to the wagon pole. the wagons that plied between the delaware and the small city of Pittsburgh were called pit teams the life of the conestoga wagon did not end even with the establishment of railroads in the eastern states farther and farther west it penetrated ever chosen by immigrants and travellers to the frontiers and at last in its old age in an equal career of usefulness as the prairie schooner in which vast numbers of families safely crossed the prairies of our far west the white tilts of the wagons thus passed and repassed till our own day Four-wheeled wagons were but little used in New England till after the War of 1812. Two-wheeled carts and sleds carried inland freight, which was chiefly transported over the snow in the winter. The Conestoga wagon of the past century was far ahead of anything in England at that date. Indeed, Mr. C. W. Ernst, the best authority I know on the subject says we had in every way far better traffic facilities at that time than england in other ways we excelled though finlay found many defects in the postal service in seventeen seventy three he also found the stavers mail coach plying between boston and portsmouth long before england had such a thing Mr. Ernst says the Stavers' mail-coach was stunning, used six horses when roads were bad, and never was late. They had no mail-coaches in England till after the Revolution, and I believe Massachusetts men introduced the idea in England. We are apt to grow retrospectively sentimental over delights. Aesthetic and physical of ancient stagecoach days; those days are not so ancient as many fancy. The first stagecoach, which ran directly from Philadelphia to New York in 1766, and primitive enough it was, was called the flying machine, a good stage wagon set on springs. Its swift trip occupied two days in good weather. It was but a year later than the original stagecoach between Edinburgh and Glasgow. At that time, in favourable weather, the coach between London and Edinburgh made the trip in thirteen days. The London mail coach, in its palmiest days, could make this trip in forty-three hours and a half as early as seventeen eighteen jonathan wardwell advertised that he would run a stage to rhode island in seventeen sixty seven a stagecoach was run during the summer months between boston and providence in 1770 a stage-chaise started between salem and boston and a post-chaise between boston and portsmouth the following year as early as 1732 some common carrier-lines had wagons which would carry a few passengers let us hear the testimony of some travellers as to the glorious pleasure of stagecoach traveling describing a trip between boston and new york towards the end of the last century president quincy of harvard college said the carriages were old and the shackling much of the harness made of ropes one pair of horses carried us eighteen miles we generally reached our resting-place for the night if no accident intervened at ten o'clock and after a frugal supper went to bed with a notice that we should be called at three next morning which generally proved to be half-past two and then whether it snowed or rained the traveller must rise and make ready by the help of a horn lantern and a farthing candle and proceed on his way over bad roads sometimes getting out to help the coachman lift the coach out of a quagmire or rut and arrived in new york after a week's hard travelling "'wondering at the ease as well as the expedition "'with which our journey was effected.'" The Columbia Sentinel of April 24th, 1793, advertised a new line of small, genteel, and easy stage carriages from Boston to New York with four inside passengers and smart horses many of the announcements of the day have pictures of the coaches they usually resemble market wagons with round canvas-covered tops and the driver is seated outside the body of the wagon with his feet on the footboard trunks were small covered with deerskin or pigskin studded with brass nails and each traveler took his trunk under his seat and feet the poet moore gives in rhyme his testimony of virginia roads in eighteen hundred dear george though every bone is aching after the shaking i've had this week over ruts and ridges and bridges made of a few uneasy planks in open ranks over rivers of mud whose names alone would make knock the knees of stoutest man the traveller weld in seventeen ninety five gave testimony that the bridges were so poor that the driver had always to stop and arrange the loose planks ere he dared cross and he adds THE DRIVER FREQUENTLY HAD TO CALL TO THE PASSENGERS IN THE STAGE TO LEAN OUT OF THE CARRIAGE FIRST ON ONE SIDE, THEN ON THE OTHER, TO PREVENT IT FROM OVERSETTING IN THE DEEP ROADS WITH WHICH THE ROAD ABOUNDS. NOW GENTLEMEN, TO THE RIGHT upon which the passengers all stretched their bodies halfway out of the carriage to balance on that side, now gentlemen to the left, and so on. The coach in which this pleasure trip was taken is shown in the illustration entitled American Stage Wagon. It is copied from a first edition of Weld's Travels. Anne Warder in her journey from Philadelphia to New York in seventeen fifty nine notes two overturned and abandoned stage wagons at Perth Amboy and many other travelers give similar testimony in seventeen ninety six the trip from Philadelphia to Baltimore took five days the growth in stage coaches and travel came with the turnpike at the beginning of this century. In transportation and travel, improvement of roadways is ever associated with improvement of vehicles. The first extensive turnpike was the one between Philadelphia and Lancaster, built in 1792. THE GROWTH AND COST OF THESE ROADS MAY BE BRIEFLY MENTIONED BY QUOTING A STATEMENT FROM THE ANNUAL MESSAGE OF THE GOVERNOR OF PENNSYLVANIA IN 1838 THAT THE COMMONWEALTH THEN HAD 2,500 MILES OF TURNPIKE THAT HAD COST 37 MILLION DOLLARS. MANY OF THESE TURNPIKES WERE BEAUTIFUL AND SPLENDID ROADS for instance the mohawk and hudson turnpike which ran in a straight line from albany to schenectady was ornamented and shaded with two rows of the quickly growing and fashionable poplar trees and thickly punctuated with taverns on one turnpike there were sixty-five taverns in sixty miles the dashing stagecoach accorded well with this fine thoroughfare. With the splendid turnpikes came the glorious coaching days. In 1827, the Traveler's Register reported 800 stage coaches arriving and as many leaving Boston each week. The forty-mile road from Boston to Providence sometimes saw twenty coaches going each way. The editor of the Providence Gazette wrote, We were rattled from Boston to Providence in four hours and fifty minutes. If anyone wants to go faster, he may go to Kentucky and charter a streak of lightning." THERE WERE FOUR RIVAL LINES ON THE CUMBERLAND ROAD—THE NATIONAL, GOOD INTENT, PIONEER, AND JUNEBUG. SOME SPIRITED RACES. THE OLD STAGE ROAD WITNESSED BETWEEN THE RIVAL LINES. THE DISTANCE FROM WHEELING TO CUMBERLAND, 132 MILES, WAS REGULARLY ACCOMPLISHED IN 24 HOURS no heavy luggage was carried and but nine passengers fourteen coaches rolled off together one was a mail coach with a horn relays were every ten miles teams were changed before the coach ceased rocking one driver boasted of changing and harnessing his four horses in four minutes Lady travellers were quickly thrust in the open door and their bandboxes after them. Scant time was there for refreshment, save by uncorking of bottles. The keen test and acute rivalry between drivers came in the delivery of the President's message. Dan Gordon carried the message thirty-two miles in two hours and thirty minutes, changing horses three times. Bill Noble carried the message from Wheatling to Hagerstown, a hundred and eighty-five miles in fifteen and a half hours. In eighteen eighteen, the Eastern Stage Company, which chartered in the state of New Hampshire, the route was this: a stage started from. Portsmouth at 9 a.m. Passengers dined at Topsfield, thence through Danvers and Salem, back the following day, dining at Newburyport. The capital stock was 425 shares at a $100 par. In 1834 the stock was worth $200 a share. The company owned several hundred horses. It was on a coach of this line that Henry Clay rode from Pleasant Street, Salem, to Tremont House, Boston, in exactly an hour, and on the route extended to Portland, Daniel Webster was carried at the rate of sixteen English miles an hour from Boston to Portland to sign the Ashburton Treaty the middle of the century saw the beginning of the end of coaching in all the states that had been colonies further west the old stage-coach had to trundle in order to exist at all ohio indiana missouri across the plains and then over the rocky mountains to salt lake THE ROAD FROM CARSON TO PLAINVILLE GAVE THE CRACK RIDE, AND THE DRIVER WORE YELLOW KID GLOVES. THE COACH KNOWN AS THE CONCORD WAGON, DRAWN BY SIX HORSES, STILL MAKES CHEERFUL THE -the OUT-OF-THE-WAY ROADS OF OUR WESTERN STATES, AND RECALLS THE LIFE OF OLDEN TIMES. THE STORY OF SPIRIT AND GAY LIFE STILL EXISTS IN THE WELLS FARGO EXPRESS. THE USEFULNESS OF THE CONCORD COACH IS NOT LIMITED TO THE WESTERN NOR THE NORTHERN PORTION OF OUR CONTINENT. IN SOUTH AMERICA IT FLOURISHES, BANISHING ALL RIVALS. CANAL TRAVEL AND TRANSPORTATION WERE PROPOSED AT THE CLOSE OF PROVINCIAL DAYS, AND A FEW SHORT CANALS WERE BUILT. BENJAMIN FRANKLIN WAS EARLY AWAKE TO THEIR PRACTICABILITY AND VALUE. Among the stock owners of the Dismal Swamp Canal was George Washington, and he was equally interested in the Potomac Canal. The Erie Canal, first proposed to the New York legislature in 1768, was completed in 1825. There was considerable passenger travel on this canal at a cent a half mile, a mile and a half an hour. Horace Greeley has given an excellent picture of this leisurely travel it was asserted by some that stage-coaches were doomed by the canal-boat but they continued to exist till they encountered a more formidable rival until turnpike days all small carriages were two-wheel chaises chairs and sulkies were those generally used the chaises and harness used by jonathan trumbull brother jonathan are here shown with regard to private conveyances whether coaches chaises or chairs the colonies kept close step from earliest days with the mother countries randolph noted with envy boston coaches of the seventeenth century parson thatcher was accused and reprehended in sixteen seventy five for making visits with a coach and four coaches were taxed both in england and america so we knew exactly how plentiful they were there were as many in massachusetts in seventeen fifty in proportion to the number of inhabitants as there were in england in eighteen thirty judge sewell's diary often refers to private coaches and one of the most amusing scenes it depicts is his continued and ingenious argument when wooing madame winthrop for his third wife when she stipulated that he should keep a coach and his frugal mind disposed him not to do it coach building prospered in the colonies lucas and paddock in boston rose in new york made beautiful and rich coaches materials were ample and varied in the new world for carriage building horse-flesh not over-choice to be sure became over-plentiful it was said that no man ever walked in america save a vagabond or a fool a coach made for madame angelica campbell of schenectady new york by coach-builder Ross in 1790, is here shown. It is now owned by Mr. John D. Campbell of Rotterdam, New York. Sleighs were common in New York a half-century before they were in Boston. Madame Knights noted the fast racing in sleighs in New York when she was there in 1704. One other curious conveyance of colonial days should be spoken of—a sedan-chair. This was a strong covered chair fastened on two bars with handles like a litter, and might be carried by two or four persons. When sedan chairs were so much used in England, they were sure to be somewhat used in cities in America. One was presented to Governor Winthrop as early as 1646, portion of a capture from a Spanish galleon judge sewell wrote in seventeen o six, five indians carried mr broomfield in a chair this was in the country down on cape cod and doubtless four indians carried him while one rested as late as 1789 eliza quincy saw dr franklin riding in a sedan chair in philadelphia the establishment and building of roads bridges and opening of inns show that mutual interest which marks civilization and separates us from the lonely selfish life of a savage soon inns were found everywhere in the northern colonies in new england new york and pennsylvania an inn was called an ordinary a victualling, a cook-shop, or a tavern, before we had our modern word hotel. Board was not very high at early inns. The prices were regulated by the different towns. In 1633 the Salem innkeeper could only have sixpence for a meal. This was at the famous Anchor Tavern, which was kept as a hostelry for nearly two centuries, at the ship tavern board lodging wine at dinner and beer between meals cost three shillings a day great care was taken by the magistrates to choose responsible men and women to keep taverns and they would not permit too many taverns in one town at first a tavern-keeper could not sell sack which was sherry nor strong intoxicated liquors to travellers BUT HE COULD SELL BEER, PROVIDED IT WAS GOOD, FOR A PENNY A QUART. NOR COULD HE SELL CAKES OR BUNS, EXCEPT AT A WEDDING OR FUNERAL. HE COULD NOT ALLOW GAMES TO BE PLAYED, NOR SINGING OR DANCING TO TAKE PLACE. WE KNOW FROM Shakespeare's PLAYS THAT THE DIFFERENT ROOMS IN ENGLISH INNS HAD NAMES. THIS WAS ALSO THE CUSTOM IN NEW ENGLAND. The Star Chamber, Rose and Sun Chamber, Blue Chamber, Jerusalem Chamber were some of them. Many of the taverns of revolutionary days and some of colonial times are still standing. A few have even been taverns since first built. Others have served many other uses. A well-preserved old house built in 1690 in Sudbury, Massachusetts, was originally known as the red horse tavern but has acquired greater fame as the wayside inn of longfellow's tales its tap-room with raftered ceiling and cage-like bar with swinging gate is a picturesque room and is one of the few old tap-rooms left unaltered in new england every inn had a name usually painted on its swinging sideboard with some significant emblem these names were simply repetitions of old english tavern signs until revolutionary days when patriotic landlords eagerly invented and adopted names significant of the new nation the scarlet coat of king george became the blue and buff of george washington and the eagle of the united states took the place of the british lion the signboard was an interesting survival of feudal times and with its old time carved and forged companions such as vanes and weathercocks door knockers, and figureheads formed a picturesque element of decoration and symbolism Many chapters might be written on historic, commemorative, emblematic, heraldic, biblical, humorous, or significant signs, nearly all of which have vanished from public gaze, as has disappeared also the general incapacity to read, which made pictorial devices a necessity gilders painter-stainers smiths and joiners all helped to make the tavern sign a thing of varied workmanship if not of art it is said that philadelphia excelled in the quantity and quality of her signboards with fair roads for colonial days the best and amplest system of transportation and the splendid conestoga wagons great inns multiplied throughout pennsylvania In Baltimore, both taverns and signs were many and varied, from the three loggerheads to the Indian Queen with its two hundred guest rooms and a bell in every room, and the fountain inn built around a shady court with galleries on every story like the Tabard inn at Southwark. The swinging sideboard of John Nash's Tavern at Amherst, Massachusetts, is here reproduced from the history of Amherst. It is a good type of the ordinary sideboard which was found hanging in front of every tavern a century ago. In Virginia and the Carolinas taverns were not so plentiful nor so necessary for a traveller might ride from Maryland to Georgia and be sure of a welcome at every private house on the way. Some planters, eager for company and news, stationed negroes at the gate to invite passers-by on the post-road to come into the house and be entertained. Berkeley, in his History of Virginia, wrote, the inhabitants are very courteous to travellers who need no other recommendation than being human creatures a stranger has no more to do but to inquire upon the road where any gentleman or good housekeeper lives and then he may depend upon being received with hospitality This good nature is so general among their people that the gentry, when they go abroad, order their principal servants to entertain all visitors with everything the plantation offers. And the poor planters who have but one bed will often sit up or lie upon a form or couch all night to make room for a weary traveller to repose himself after his journey." so universal was this custom of free entertainment that it was a law in virginia that unless there had been a distinct agreement to pay for board and shelter no pay could be claimed for any guest no matter how long he remained in the few taverns that existed prices were low about a shilling a dinner and it was ordered that the meal must be wholesome and good the governor of new netherlands at first entertained all visitors to new amsterdam at his house in the fort but as commerce increased he found this hospitality burdensome and a harbour or tavern was built it was later used as a city hall in england throughout the seventeenth century and indeed much later traversing the great cities by night was a matter of some danger The streets were ill-lighted, were full of holes and mud and filth, and were infested with thieves. Worse still, groups of drunken and dissipated young men of wealth, calling themselves mohawks, scorers, and other names, roamed the dark streets armed with swords and bludgeons, assaulting, tormenting, and injuring every one whom they met, who had the ill fortune to be abroad at night there was nothing of that sort known in american cities there was little noise or roistering no highway robbery comparative little petty stealing the streets were ill-paved and dirty but not foul with the accumulated dirt of centuries as in london the streets in nearly all cities were unlighted in sixteen ninety seven new yorkers were ordered to have a lantern AND CANDLE HUNG OUT ON A pole FROM EVERY SEVENTH HOUSE, AND AS THE WATCHMAN WALKED AROUND, HE CALLED OUT, LANTHORN AND A WHOLE CANDLE-LIGHT, HANG OUT YOUR LIGHTS. THE WATCHMAN WAS CALLED A RATTLE-WATCH, AND CARRIED A LONG STAFF AND A LANTERN AND A LARGE RATTLE OR CLOPPER, WHICH HE STRUCK TO FRIGHTEN AWAY THIEVES, AND ALL NIGHT LONG HE CALLED OUT EACH HOUR AND TOLD THE WEATHER for instance he called out past midnight all's well one o'clock and fair winds or five o'clock and cloudy skies thus one could lie safe in bed and if he chanced to waken could know that the friendly rattle watch was near at hand and what was the weather and the time of night in sixteen fifty eight new york had in all ten watchmen who were like our modern police Today it has many thousands in new england the constables and watch were all carefully appointed by law they carried black staves six feet long tipped with brass and hence were called tip staves the night watch was called a bell-man he looked out for fire and thieves and other disorders and called the time of the night and the weather the pay was small often but a shilling a night and occasionally a coat of cursey in large towns as in boston and salem thirteen sober honest men and householders wore the night watch. The highest in the community, even the magistrate, took their turn at the watch and were ordered to walk two together, a young man with, quote, one of the soberer sort, unquote. End of chapter 14